perspective. And we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, an Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. South Africa's ruling African National Congress preaches unity and the situation in Gabon set to be back to normal. In sports news, AFCON vote was politically was political, but there are serious doubts about Egypt. At first up the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Anti-riot police are gathering outside the Democratic Republic of Congo's Electoral Commission as the country awaits the first results of the presidential election. Opposition parties are urging the Electoral Commission to release results as soon as possible after it delayed the announcement indefinitely on Sunday. The Commission is meeting to discuss results that have been compiled so far. The DRC is choosing a successor to President Joseph Kibela, who has been in office since 2001. Meanwhile, opposition candidate Marte Fayolo says his coalition will release its own election results if the ones announced by the Electoral Commission don't conform to the will of the people. The spokesperson for opposition candidate Felix Tshikedi and ruling party candidate Emmanuel Ramazani Shadri have both hinted at victory, though regulations say only the Electoral Commission can announce the results. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa and his Zambian counterpart Edgar Lungu will later in the day hold an urgent meeting in South Africa's coastal city of Durban to discuss the current developments in the DRC where elections were held recently. The elections were cancelled in some parts of the country, including in the town of Beni, due to insecurity and an ongoing Ebola epidemic in the region. Researcher at the Institute for Dispute Resolution in Africa, Sipo Mantula. This is very critical. Zambia was the chair of the Saturday Electoral Observer Mission in DRC. President Lungo was not present, but his Minister of Foreign Affairs was there for more than a month, and they issued a preliminary report. South Africa sits in the Troika of the organ of SADC. They are looking at the um, strategy. The UN Security Council meeting has been called off until Friday, meaning consultations are going behind the scenes. But it is very critical that this meeting, at least it looks at the uh, role as well of the Electoral Commission in DRC. Thousands of protesters chanting revolution as the people's choice have taken to the streets in a city southeast of the Sudanese capital Khartoum to call on President Omar al-Bashir to step down. The demonstration in Qadarif came hours after Sudan's interior minister Ahmed Bilal Othman told Parliament that police have arrested 816 people since protests erupted on the 19th of December. Human Rights Watch have also said at least 40 people were killed in the protests and accused security forces 
sources of using live ammunition and excessive force against the protesters as well as arbitrary detention. Otman says 19 people have been killed in the protests, including two members of the security forces. President al-Bashir has ordered an investigation into the killings. Former Mozambican Finance Minister Manuel Chang is expected to continue his fight against extradition to the United States in a South African court. Chang briefly appeared in court in Johannesburg on Tuesday, where he argued that his detention was unlawful and that his extradition, if carried out, would also be illegal. He has been held in South Africa since the 29th of December as part of a U.S. case that has seen arrests in London and New York and overtaken Mozambique's own investigation into the matter. Mozambique's Attorney General's office indicted 18 citizens, including Chang, as part of its own investigation on Monday and said it would seek to have those charged in the United States to face charges in Mozambique. And finally, U.S. President Donald Trump has demanded funding for his long-promised U.S.-Mexico border wall. The Republican president wants over $5.7 billion to build a steel barrier, which would deliver on the signature campaign pledge. But Democrats are adamantly opposed to giving him the funds. The U.S. is on its 18th day of a government shutdown, leaving thousands of government workers unpaid. Trump was speaking in his first TV address to the nation from the The federal government remains shut down for one reason and one reason only, because Democrats will not fund border security. My administration is doing everything in our power to help those impacted by the situation. But the only solution is for Democrats to pass a spending bill that defends our borders and reopens the government. This situation could be solved in a 45-minute meeting. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. President of South Africa's ruling African National Congress, the ANC, Cyril Ramaphosa, has dismissed suggestions that relations are tense between himself and former President Jacob Zuma. He was addressing scores of party members and supporters in Inanda, north of Durban, where the ANC was celebrating its 107th anniversary. Both Ramaphosa and former President Jacob Zuma arrived at the venue walking side by side. The January 8th statement is when the ANC takes stock of its performance while also outlining its future plans. While admitting some gaps, Ramaphosa says he is pleased with the ANC-led government's achievements. Vusima Kosini reports. Congress President of the African National Congress, Congress Cyril Matamela Ramaphosa, former president of the ANC, Congress Jacob Kezeshegi Sazuma. A resounding welcome for both President Cyril Ramaphosa and former President Jacob Zuma as they arrive in Inanda. The two arrived together both at the grave of the ANC's first president, John Langalibale Dube, as well as the anniversary rally in Inanda, north of Devon. Early in the morning, Ramaphosa, accompanied by party provincial chairperson Silis Galala and other NEC members, interacted with people at the taxi rank in Pinetown. 
He later attended the church service in Devon. Addressing scores of party members and supporters at the rally in Inanda, Ramaphosa dismissed suggestions that there is a rift between himself and Zuma. He also dismissed media reports that suggest that he wants to use a planned meeting with Zuma to rebuke him about his recent public statements. And of course, it is even more special when I'm walking once again, no comrade Jacob Zuma, and who is still a leader in the broad ANC and who is still able to play a role, a role of helping us to unite the African National Congress. It means we are all committed to the task of building the African National Congress and of uniting the ANC, but more importantly, of ensuring Uguti ANC romps to victory. Ramaphosa spent a large part of his speech talking about the achievements of the ANC-led government since 1994. This covered access to education, housing, healthcare, and economic stability. While he admits that there has been an uphill battle to deal with high unemployment levels and the struggling economy, Ramaphosa says the economy has managed to create jobs. We have added from 1994 to now, we have added another 7 million Yabantu Abasebenzayo, Siyakile Imsebenzi. In the Siyazi we still have to create more jobs. Once prohibited from running businesses, prevented from raising above a certain level of employment, black South Africans are now free to own companies to trade and to enter any profession. Ramaphosa lamented the high levels of abuse that women and children are subjected to. The president described abuse of women and children as a national crisis. But we must hang our heads in shame that even as we make progress in forging a non-sexist society, women in our country continue to be confronted with unprecedented levels of abuse, of violence, and murder, often by those who are closest to them. This is a national crisis. However, the family of the late John Dobe, the first president of the ANC, says it's unfortunate that indigenous people of South Africa are still at the receiving end when it comes to economic opportunities. Dube's grandson Langa was speaking on the sidelines of the ANC's 107 anniversary celebrations. He says while great strides have been achieved by the ANC-led government to bring black people on board, the gap between the rich and poor is still wide. What they've already committed themselves to, to do, they still need to pursue the idea of ensuring that people do get decent housing, all the basic services, and people need to be given opportunities to advance themselves because South Africa is the only country where you find the indigenous people of this country are the ones that backbenchers are actually not in charge of the, 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 the businesses at whatever level you can think of. Meanwhile, the ANC's top leadership will continue to crisscross the province, interacting and mobilizing communities to attend the launch of the party's election manifesto on Saturday.
I'm Vusima Kosini in Deben. Meanwhile, the top leaders of the African National Congress went all out celebrating the party's 107th anniversary in all its regions in KwaZulu-Natal. The message is clear. The party needs to be united ahead of the upcoming general elections. Nongululego Lope compiled this report. The ANC prides itself for managing to pull off the party's anniversary celebrations in all regions in Guazumatal. Various leaders from top structures teamed up with local leaders and went on the streets painting them black, green and gold. They made their presence felt even in small towns. ANC Secretary General Ace Mahashule says unity is crucial among party members and leaders. Speaking in Umzimkulu, inside in Guazumatal about killings that have plagued the region, Mahashule says they regret losing so many people. Well, we are happy. We are moving forward. We just regret and will forever regret those killings here and anywhere in the country. The ANC is a very peaceful organization. We want peace amongst our communities, amongst our people, amongst our comrades. This is why the ANC exists. That's the reason we are a very peaceful organization. We believe and we trust that, yeah, these numbers... The ANC is coming together. Meanwhile, Mahashule says they are working with the troubled Moses Mapida region and have made progress. 107 years of uh, ANC. Uh, we are happy that uh, the ANC is uniting throughout across the country. Unity is, is a process. Uh, it takes time. The ANC is a very patient organization. And we have been interacting with Moses Mabida. Comrades have been marching to us, coming to the head office talking to us. We have engaged them with the province, very successful, fruitful meetings and outcomes. Our comrades are slowly and slowly understanding that things will be fine and we are happy and they are also celebrating and we'll be going there uh, because uh, there's no way we cannot go to our people. Whether they are angry, whether they fight, the ANC must live uh, and be amongst them. Ordinary people who were part of the celebrations raise issues with ANC leaders. Sports activities can groom us also. If we can have training and rehabilitation centers where we can receive assistance. That can also decrease the number of Wunga victims who must also be taken to school in order to better our country. We plead to the Deputy Minister for Housing Projects and Improved Sanitation System, also for job opportunities. ANC Deputy President David Mabuza has urged all members to accept all party leaders. People are excited. It's our celebration. It's our birthday. People are very happy. So we're having a good time. Very challenging. Probably that's why the party is there to face those challenges. That's why we exist. I think uh, challenges will always be there. ANC leaders will continue crisscrossing the province ahead of the party's election manifesto launch in Durban's Moses Mapida Stadium on Saturday. I'm Nungulegotlope in Umzimkulu. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka.
in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Well, South Africa's Directorate for Priority Crime Investigation, the Hawks, have seized 706 kilograms of cocaine at the port of Ngucha near Port Elizabeth in the Eastern Cape, acting on a tip-off. Interpol, the Hawks and the K-9 unit swooped on the vessel transporting the drugs. It's alleged that the drugs were on their way to India. Luando Nomoyi has more. The drug bus came after days of investigation and represents a zero-tolerance approach to drug smuggling. No one has been arrested following the seizure of 706 kilograms of cocaine at the port of Nguja near Port Elizabeth. It was allegedly loaded on a vessel in Brazil that was heading to India. National head of the Hawks, General Godfrey Lebea, says the cocaine is estimated to the street value of 720 million rands. 706 uh, of these uh, packets, that is, each one of these weighs uh, one kg. And then, uh, in terms of uh, the estimated street value of this, is 720 million rands. Lebeya says they have been following leads about the drugs for more than a week, and the cocaine was found hidden in a container at the bottom of a stack of other containers. Uh, we have been uh, working on this matter for the past uh, 12 days. So since the 27th of December 2018, we have been working on this matter. This work is undertaken by, with the assistance of our counterpart Interpol, both locally and uh, across abroad. The general has applauded the outstanding work of the various stakeholders involved and he says they are committed in eradicating drug smuggling. We are still going to put more efforts in targeting the supply of these dangerous dependent producing substances. We will not be allowing these substances to go and rain the lives of innocent people whose health are uh, being turned into drug addicts. Uh, We are making a call, do not do drugs, do not demand drugs, do not apply for a criminal record by doing drugs. If you stop demanding the drugs, cartels will not be producing or delivering them. Uh, The empires of the cartels will fall. A small amount of the cocaine will be kept for sampling and investigation, but the remainder will be destroyed. I'm Luando Nomoyi in Port Elizabeth. The political situation in Gabon is under control following an attempted military coup against President Ali Bongo. Two soldiers who took part in Monday's attempted coup in Gabon have been killed, according to the president's office. The junior officers claim they seized power to restore democracy in the oil-rich Gabon, where the ailing leader's family has ruled for 50 years. The BBC's Alan Kasuja spoke to Professor Nick Cheeseman, a professor of democracy and international development at the University of Birmingham. It seems very much like a failed coup now. I think it it seems to me that the political vacuum in Gabon created by uh, the absence of a president for a significant period of time may have been the thing that inspired this. In many cases in Africa's past, we've seen coups be triggered by 
things that seem to reduce the conditions for the military, you know, a cut in pay or a move to uh, remove or purge certain figures from the military, that doesn't really seem to have happened this time. So I think this one, in a way, caught people a little bit more by surprise. Right. And then the one thing that struck me is the fact that they decided to go to radios and to sort of take over radio stations, same way that um, the attempted coup in Kenya in 1992 did, and same way, you know, Idi Amin did in Uganda. The same thing has happened in Mali, uh, you know, in Burundi in 2015. But it still seems like a very old thing to do, very old tactic. Yeah, but it's a good point, right? You, historically, you went to the radio, you might go to the airport, you take over certain key institutions in uh, the capital city, and maybe you'd also make sure that you locked up certain key figures in the government to stop them responding. Um, but nowadays, you ask the question about, is the radio still as important as it used to be? I think it's a really good question. I mean, one thing that we actually know is that despite the spread of social media, most people still get most of their news on the radio. And the radio still, you know, especially in rural areas, is a more powerful force. Um, but, of course, there are going to be some countries now where the radio is significantly uh, being outpaced by other mechanisms like social media and TV. And particularly in urban areas, which you might think are the most important areas to get control of if you've just launched a coup, the radio might not be as important as it used to be. And having a conversation with a general once, I sort of <laughs> asked him, what would you do? if you wanted to organize a coup, and this was a hypothetical conversation. Um, he carefully told me that, you know, I would start with a couple of people, maybe two or three people, not more than that, because if you go beyond that circle, it then becomes difficult to trust anybody. That's true, but the other difficulty you've got is you've got to have coordination. I mean, a moment ago, you mentioned the Kenyan coup uh, of the 80s, which was a failed coup. And one of the reasons that seems to have been a failed coup is there seems to have been two or three different groups thinking about launching a coup around the same time. And one group moved. Other figures weren't sure whether the people that were moving were part of their group or not. And so the coup wasn't properly coordinated with different factions, not sure whether they should do things at the same time. And all of a sudden, the government was able to reassert control. But it was a very, very close run thing. So the difficulty, of course, if you don't let people know about the coup is you're not sure how other factions of the military or other parts of the security forces are going to react. Might that have been the case in Turkey? Yeah, I think probably that's the case in Turkey. I mean, sometimes what we see is very, very junior officers moving against the senior officers. And of course, in that case, the question is, are there enough people higher up who are going to co-opt and jump to them when it looks like there's an opportunity for regime change? No, but if not, the junior officers can be crowded out very quickly and the punishment, of course, as we've already seen in Gabon, is pretty brutal. If you launch a coup and it fails, typically you're going to lose your life. And that's Professor Nick Cheeseman, a professor of democracy and international development at the University of Birmingham, speaking to the BBC's Alan Kasuja. Madagascar's Constitutional Court has confirmed Andrew Rajalina as the winner of the country's presidential election. The announcement comes after Mark Ravalomanana, one of the two leading presidential candidates, lodged an appeal with the court claiming fraud in the electoral process and demanding a recount of votes. Ravalomanana and Andrew Rajalina, both former presidents, faced off in a runoff vote which saw Rajalina scoring 55% of the ballot and Ravalomanana winning 44%. On Saturday, riot police used tear gas to break up one of several protests by thousands of Ravalomanana supporters in the capital. 
Anta Nanarivo. Spumele Lezondi spoke to Keta Kandriana Rafitoson, head of Transparency International in Madagascar. What's the mood like after this confirmation in Antananarivo? It's half about joy, of course, from the partisans of uh, Radwilna, the newly elected president. But it's half of uh, sadness and sorrow from the supporters of uh, Raval Manan who lost the election. And there is a kind of tension, of course, because, as you said, we had protests and demonstrations here starting from, I would say, a week ago. And there are high chances that these demonstrations will continue in the upcoming days. So, yeah, we are under tension for the moment. And the, the upcoming three days or uh, the week will define the general mood of the start of the 2019 year in Madagascar. Um, and now these two, who were both front runners, Ravalo Manana and Rachelina, mm-hmm. are not friends, are they? No, they are not. <laughs> they have a long political history, I would say, because uh, everything started in 2007 when uh, Razuelna became the mayor of Antananarivo, and then they had some clash, and uh, it continued in 2009, uh, during which Razuelna, under a coup d'etat, overthrew Mark Ravalmanen, and then you know the rest of the story. So. This election was a kind of remake of the one that we didn't have in 2013, where none of them were allowed to run. So, yeah, they are, they are not friends at all. But uh, I don't think, at least everybody is expecting for now, for the sake of the country, that they will collaborate somehow, that they will work together. But I would say that there, the chances for that to happen are kind of low. Ravala Manana ended up in exile. Uh, Rajolina ended up as president through a coup. Um, how likely is that collaboration? The chances are so poor for me because, uh, as I said, they are not friends. I would say that they are enemies and their partisans are enemies as well. So that would be very difficult for them to find a common ground, I would say. But... Anyway, we will have the, the legislative elections, you know, the, for the parliament the upcoming, this upcoming April. So that might be the open door for some kind of collaboration because if the partisans of Raval Manana uh, can put a, a high number of MPs at the parliament, then they will have the chance to collaborate with the new regime. That will be, for me, the one and only solution for setting up some kind of serenity or, or, you know, kind of collaboration between the two movements. Mm. Uh, Now, uh, President-elect Rajolina now, what sort of relationship are we likely to see him have with regional bodies? Because we know that last time he was in trouble with them for taking power through a coup, that is um, SEDEC and um, the African Union. Yeah, but this time, you know, the context has changed because now he, he has been officially elected so uh, he's now ruling under a democratic, let's say so, uh, a model. So the regional bodies have to accept this decision uh, made by the High Constitutional Court of Madagascar and by the people of Madagascar in a way. So I don't think that there will be lots of problems regarding this, but we will see in the upcoming months.
All right. Um, if you were to give him advice, a first task mm. as president. The first advice that I would give to him is to disclose, you know, the informa- information regarding his campaigning funds. Because we have been, we at TI, we have been asking him, along with the 35 other candidates, uh, at the very start of this election, we have asked, we've been asking them, where does your money come from? Who helped you? And only six of the 36 candidates gave us the answer. Razuel and Raval Manana didn't disclose this information. So for us, it's very dangerous, this lack of transparency at the very beginning of a presidential mandate. So my first advice would be that. Please, sir, disclose your information. Show the Malagasy people that you dare to say the truth. And we know that you used a lot of money during your campaign, but where, where did this money come from? Because this will also help us understand where the money that he will be using for funding his numerous projects will come. And this is a very important information for us to have in mind. Mm. Do you think it's going to have the support of the Malagasy people in general? Oh, this is kind of difficult because if you make the calculation, you know, the only 52% of the voters did vote. Uh, that means that the voter turnout was kind of 48%. If you take from this percentage Raval Manana's vote, and then uh, you have something like 26%. Only 26% of Malagasy really voted for him, in fact. So this makes his legitimacy kind of low. Uh, that means that one-third of the... Malagasy population has voted for him, but what about the rest then? So the country now for the moment is highly divided. So it is up to him to make some efforts to unite the population, to unite the country. And that will depend on his strategy and on the first steps that he will be taking uh, in the upcoming weeks. And that is Keta Kandriana Rafitoson, Head of Transparency International in Madagascar, speaking to Spumelele Zondi. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, anti-riot police are gathering outside the Democratic Republic of Congo's Electoral Commission as the country awaits the first results of the presidential election. Thousands of protesters take to the streets in Kadarif, southeast of the Sudanese capital, to call on President Omar al-Bashir to step down. And former Mozambican Finance Minister Manuel Chang is expected to continue his fight against extradition to the United States in a South African court. Those are the stories making headlines.
Recently, the South African Department of Women, which aims to accelerate socio-economic transformation for women empowerment and the advancement of gender equality, has officially launched children's and men's robots, which aims to bring generational change and ensure a gender-based violence-free society. The children's robots aim to condition South Africa's next generation on how to be a good friend and educate them about the negative impacts of aggressive activities. Spokesperson of the South African Department of Women, Shalin Gajada, tells us more. The robot basically is a mechanism by which women are able to evaluate their own relationships or that of their close friends or family to assess whether they are in a healthy relationship, in a relationship that puts them at risk, or in a relationship that actually poses a danger to them. What we found in our community dialogue is that there wasn't a tool or mechanism or a conversation starting around when we meet women and discuss the relative health of their relationship. So the robot itself is just a mechanism using the colors green, orange, and red by which women and then men and children are quickly able to assess what type of relationship they're actually in. Now, may you give us an idea of how bad the rates of children and women being abused in South Africa or even Africa? Well, Africa, unfortunately, sexual violence and violence against women and children is at an all-time high. So with the exception of a few countries across Africa, we certainly have many countries in Africa reporting both gender-based violence as well as violence on women and children. And South Africa, unfortunately, has the title of having the highest rate gender-based violence in the world. Stats essay reports that between the years 2000 and 2015, the World Health Organization stated that crime against women in South Africa alone was five times more than the international average. Wow, that's really bad. Now, do you think the amount of women and children being abused has increased over the past years, or are there more women brave enough to stand up for themselves? Well, it's a very complex question. You know, with campaigns like the Robo- campaign, we get more and more women to step forward and report abuse, but we also have a lot more women starting to understand what abuse is. You know, we have women realizing that that what they thought might be acceptable behavior is actually an abuse. So we have these types of women coming forward to seek help, to seek support, but they might not necessarily be reporting that to the police service. They might just be seeking help through social workers, through psychologists, etc. in their community. Between the years of 2000 and 2015, as I mentioned, it was five times more than the international average. More recent reports that these levels are in decline. But, you know, the bottom line is that gender-based violence in South Africa is at unacceptably high levels. There's a silent war on women. I think it's a combination of both more cases of femicide occurring and, on the other side, more women being educated about what constitutes gender-based violence and then stepping up and reporting them. Now, this robot concept is really new. It's the first time I hear of it. And why do you see the need of using a robot concept instead of using human-to-human interaction of educating people of different behavioral changes in relationships? The idea for a robot, quite simply, is to broach social and cultural barriers that exist. You know, we use the mechanism in conjunction with dialogues that the department hosts with women across South Africa. So we travel to communities, we travel to wards and districts, we meet with groups of women to discuss what is gender-based violence. But we find that when we walk into a room and you have a group of 200 women seated about to engage on this issue, it's very difficult to get that woman to stand up to say, I think I am in an abusive relationship. Because you have a lot of strangers, you have a lot of people in the room and they might not be willing to talk to us as a department. The robot is just simply a mechanism through which we 
they say to people, introspect, look at your own relationships or look at a relationship with somebody you know. Is your partner telling you that he or she loves you? Is your partner treating you well? Does your partner respect you? Does your partner respect your decision? If you start to answer yes to those questions, then we will start to realize they're in a healthy relationship. But we're more concerned about those people in risky or in dangerous relationships. So does your partner control who you can see and when you can see them? Does your partner control the way you dress? Does your partner take control of your finances, etc.? So it's simply just a talking point or mechanism by which we're able to have that person-to-person connection. So in response, that we've developed a men's robot, which then speaks to men and to young boys to say, are you the type of partner that tells your partner you love them? You know, do you respect your partner's decision? Do you spend time with your partner? Do you consider their emotional well-being? After these men and women have gained knowledge of the robot, what are the post programs that the Department of Women were instead to assure that they have been rehabilitated? So the Department of Women itself has a very specific mandate from the presidency, you know, to set up programs which other departments can then carry forward in their program. So we lobby other departments like South African Police Service, like the Department of Health, like the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development, like the Department of Social Development, to then hold programs like Men's Dialogues to host Men Empowerment Programs. And for our last question, for those who live in rural areas where they don't have access to cell phones or don't have access to come to certain departments for help, how can they get their hands or get a hold of this robot or get knowledge about this robot? The idea is to, to get into communities, is to take this information to poor communities, but not just the department alone, you know, like I said, through our partner departments as well as through NGOs. And that's uh, Shailene Gajada, spokesperson of the South African Department of Women on the line to Numbuiselo Tango. Our- Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. A brand South Africa has welcomed the country's improvement in the 2018 Index of Economic Freedom. According to the Heritage Foundation, South Africa sits at position 77 out of 118 world rankings when it comes to economic freedom. It holds a fourth position in the Africa region. General Manager of Research for Brand South Africa, Dr. Pietras de Kok, explains. We follow quite a range of indices as an organization, you know, from competitiveness to governance, like the Ibrahim Index of African Governance. So we try to maintain a bit of a bird's eye view on external opinion on the country. You know, these are instruments that we don't have any control over. So what this one is basically telling us, it looks at four dimensions of a country's economic, well, let's say, broader economic system. It looks at uh, government uh, efficiency, it looks at the policy environment, and then it measures the extent to which it either impedes individual or citizen or business activity or enables it. Basically, you know, to what extent do we need to deal with uh, issues, you know, that can hamper 
our freedom as individuals to engage in economic activity. When we look at uh, the results that have uh, come up, obviously it's, it's taken a while to sort of get to where we are right now. Let's unpack some of the main stumbling blocks when it comes to progress on this front, Doctor. One of the things that was noted in the report, and this is quite well known in the South African external environment, you know, last year, in terms of our GDP growth, that's one thing that's noted as a bit of a concern. You know, we had two quarters that were quite problematical, and then towards the end of the year, we saw a bit of a spike in terms of GDP numbers. So that's one thing that's called out as a, as a challenge. And another area, which is also something that's often in the news, you know, pertains to concerns around corruption, because that can also become at a certain level, an impediment, you know, to free uh, business activity. But having said that, the one area that is very interesting, you know, where we can see a direct uh, correlation between what a government does and then an improvement in the index, if you look at the area of investment freedom, we improved with 10 points in the index on that measure in last year. And that's really a result of President Ramaphosa coming into uh, the position as president and then making investments a priority of his administration. Mm. Mm. We had the investment conference last year. We had the investment envoys appointed. And I think that we could definitely see how an administration's decision and its focus on a particular area can actually move the boundary, you know, in terms of performance of the country. Also, I think interesting, because we're talking Channel Africa Radio, what's interesting is that Rwanda and Botswana uh, from the continent uh, rank quite far above South Africa. And we know those mm, two countries mm. have been doing a lot of work in the last few years you know, to enable investment, open space in the economies, etc. Um, so, yeah, those are just some of the things that jump up from the index. And uh, thank you for highlighting that because I was about to ask what is it that the other countries that are obviously ahead of South Africa on the mm-hmm. continent are doing differently. But uh, you've highlighted uh, some of, of that. Now, we know that uh, the country is going into elections this year. We're going to see a lot of the political uh, parties, you know, garnering for the voters and the support that's needed. When we look at um, the strides that need to be made when it comes to the economic uh, freedom, so to speak, what is it that you'll be looking for in terms terms of um, hearing uh, from the, the powers that be to sort of um, assist to fast-track progress on this front? You know, I think maybe on the point of elections, you know, as an organization like South Africa, you know, we always look at the bigger picture of the country. Now, maybe just a quick reference to another index, the Ibrahim Index of African Governance. You know, that index of Africa ranks first on the continent in terms of its management of election uh, systems you know, which speaks to the Independent Electoral Commission. So South Africa is very well known for a incredibly robust, a fair and transparent electoral system. So I think before we get to anything what we are looking for in terms of the election, I think the most important thing for us in South Africa is to maintain that system, you know, to maintain the robustness of our democracy, to deepen that democracy, you know, that we have more of the opinion of citizens to impact on what ultimately becomes government policy and implementation. So I think as we look towards the election, I think the most important thing we must just be patient of is, you know, we've got a incredibly robust public debate. So people shouldn't confuse a very robust public debate with yeah. some of these very problematical terms like political instability, these kind of things. You know, there's no correlation between those two yeah. in the South African context. And I think when it comes to the economic front, you know, that's so a huge path that we journey that we have to make as a country. On the one hand, we continue to deal with the history of 
segregation, exclusion, um, domination, and then the correction of that, and that comes in many different forms. You know, it comes in the form, for example, of the more recent innovations on land reform in the country. And I think that will probably become a very hot topic as we head towards the election. Well, it certainly is a hot topic and it's a, and that it will certainly continue to be quite a hot topic. But it's interesting to see some of these results uh, that are coming through, uh, Doctor. For people who would like to, you know, zoom in more on this uh, particular report and uh, dissect it, where is it that they can access it? Um, is it available on your website or where can people go? Uh, the major report is released by the Heritage Foundation. So any listener who would like to look for that, they can look at the, the Heritage Foundation. And uh, we also released a press statement that will be on our website. And within, I think, the next uh, week or two, we will have more updated information You know, on a range of industries, yeah. not just on this particular one, but on others as well. And that they can find on www.brandsouthafrica.com. That's Dr. Pietro Stukok, General Manager of Research for Brand South Africa, on the line speaking to Zikonamiso. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9am with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Good morning. Uganda says its ballooning public debt is sustainable and that it would borrow with care in the future, dismissing concerns from the central bank and the government's auditor that growing indebtedness posed risks to the economy. The East African nation's appetite for credit has accelerated over the last decade, fueled by President Yoweri Museveni's plans to expand transport and infrastructure. Critics say the escalating borrowing could spark a crisis along the lines of those of the country experienced in the 1990s and early 200s before the World Bank forgave loans. Some of South Africa's leading economists have warned that after the national elections it will take some time to improve the economy as the country is grappling with the aftermath of state capture. They share the view that there are still hurdles that are preventing the country from realizing greater economic growth. Economists say structural reform and policy certainty are necessary for jobs to be created in South Africa and the economy to grow. Chief economist at Econometrics as a Means says improved education and skills development are key to growing the economy and creating jobs.
state capture and corruption have been eating away a lot of the revenue that could be generated from the economy and going into just a handful of pockets and not redeployed within the economy, but some of it has been, or much of it has been leaving the country. Secondly, we have inadequate education and skills development uh, so that a lot of people who are looking for jobs just can't find them. Members of Grain South Africa say the land issue has compounded their problems as they grapple with the drought conditions. They have called on government to give clarity on how land expropriation without compensation process will unfold. The farmers say the uncertainty has a negative impact on food security and their financial future. Grain assay manager Jan George Pretorius. With all the uncertainty and whatever that, that there is surrounding that, I need to pay my bills and I need to pay my people on the farm and that means that I need to plant. So it leaves us with a sword hanging over our heads and together with all the other stuff and there's uncertainty. I wish the government can, can give us clarity on that so that we at least know on that way, way, in, in what direction we're heading. Nigeria has lost an estimated 2.8 billion US dollars in revenue in 2018, mainly due to maritime and oil-related crimes. This is contained in a United Nations report by the World Body's Secretary General Antonio Guterres on his activities of the UN Office for West Africa and the Sahel. The report states that maritime crime and piracy off the coast of West Africa continue to pose a threat to peace, security and development in the region. The U.S. dollar is trading at 363.2 to the Nigerian Naira, 10.34 Botswana Pula, at 101.15 Kenyan shillings, 11.89 Zambian Kwacha. In Brex currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.72 Brazilian Rail, 66.88 Russian Ruble, 69.84 Indian Rupee, 6.85 Chinese Yuan, and 13.94 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound, 87 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,284, platinum $821 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $59.40 a barrel. From an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with football news. It has a worst kept secret that the executive committee of the Confederation of African Football Cave was going to award the hosting rights to the, of the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations tournament to Egypt and North South Africa. It didn't come as a surprise when the North African country was confirmed as the host to replace Cameroon, who had been stripped of the right to host the first expanded 2014 AFCON tournament in November last year. Egypt will now be hosting AFCON for the fifth time. Now, veteran African football journalist Mark Gleason says, politically, this decision was not a surprise. 
I would say yes and no. It's a, not a surprise on the political uh, front because I think South Africa does not have many friends. We saw what happened with Danny Ordan in the FIFA exec uh, election. The exco made the de- CAF exco made the decisions. Obviously, there's not a lot of people who who like South Africa or support South Africa, which is very strange to me because you know uh, you come here, you're going to have a good time, you're going to have a good tournament. It's, it's for the good of the game. Uh, so I wasn't surprised on that aspect. Egypt got 16 votes from the Kava executive and only one for South Africa with one abstention. Generally, that didn't seem to be an appetite from South Africans to host this tournament as many felt that Bafana Bafana have to qualify for the AFCON having held this tournament as recent as 2013. They will be away to Libya in a neutral venue in North Africa at the end of March. And listen, is concerned that Stuart Baxter's team could disappoint. I, I am very, 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 very worried. I really am. I think, you know, Libya need to win 1-0 to qualify. We are out. Where in the history of African football has a team beaten Nigeria away from home in a group and still not qualified? Uh, it would call for drastic changes in South African football. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, how are we in a situation where people don't want to come and have the tournament here? Why do we have no friends politically in, in African football? What are we doing wrong? And then why are we not qualifying for, for the Nations Cup in a, in a, in a four-man group in a four-team group where the top two go through. We just have to finish ahead of Libya and Seychelles. I'm very, very worried for March. I think I might take the month off and go away on holiday. (laughs) Banyana Banyana star Timbi Khatlana is the best women's soccer player in Africa. She was named African Women's Player of the Year at the KEF Awards in Dakar, Senegal last night. She also won Goal of the Year for her stunning strike in the win over Nigeria in the opening match of the African Women's Championship. Banyana coach Desiree Ellis was named Women's Coach of the Year, but Banyana lost out to Nigeria in the Team of the Year category. A top men's award went to Egypt and Liverpool striker Mohamed Salah, while Morocco men to have Renard was Coach of the Year. In golf news, the three-time major winner Patrick Harrington had been the clear favorite to succeed Denmark's Thomas Bjorn for the defense at Whistling Straits, Wisconsin, after having served as vice-captain at the last three Ryder Cups. Harrington won back-to-back British Opens in 2007 and 2008 before going on to win his third major at the year's PGA Championship, also played in six successive Ryder Cups from 1999, helping Europe to four victories. Uh, well, obviously, I'm, I'm thrilled to be named as the Ryder Cup captain for 2020. It's not something I went into lightly. Uh, you know, I suppose... You could look at this as being a natural progression. You move on from player to vice-captain to captain, but it's not something that I take on without a certain amount of trepidation. I, uh, I really want to be a help. It's, 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 I want to hopefully lead the Ryder Cup and the European Tour in a better place after two years. And, you know, having been a player, having won three majors, I've done a lot in my own personal career, but... You know, I know taking on the Ryder Cup captaincy is a different thing. It's a different level. And it's something I have to, you know, I really, you know, conscious that I have to find that edge and, and add to it. Uh, and, and, you know, that's something I don't take lightly. It's going to take a great deal of my time over the, the next 18 months figuring out how can I make our team play to the best of their ability. Paul McGinley successfully captained Europe at Glen Eagles in 2012, while Darren Clark lost out on American soil at Hazeltine in 2014. McGinley and Clark were among those in a five-man committee to select the captain for Whistling Straits. That's a sport news this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. South Africa's ruling African National Congress preaches unity within its structures and the situation in Gabon is back to normal. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Lebumuna Mukhulu, technical producer Wiseman Mangele, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency. 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to southern Africa is Mondlingobo.